Diversify is the podcast that helps you diversify. Uh, much like Brexit means Brexit, diversify means diversify. How are you, Kate? I'm a bit um, weather-worn by the weather. Weather-worn is weather-worn. Brexit means Brexit and diversify is diversify. <laughs> and hail means hail. And within half an hour, it went from being sunshine and roses to hail and The box. end of days? Yeah, the bees are dying. Yeah, so we were discussing how it's kind of a bit like every time there's extreme weather, whether it's sun or rain, we can't enjoy it because all we're thinking about is how the world is ending and there will be plagues of locusts. Our wonderful guest today actually told us that there is something in the Quran that says when the bees are dying out, that will be end of days. So, hello guest, what's your name? Afia Ahmed. Afia Ahmed, welcome. And uh, please explain slightly better what I just said about bees. (laughs) Um, So there is a chapter in the Quran. What one of the bits of it said was that when the bee population is at an all-time low, you will start to see the end of times and the human race will slowly begin to kind of die out because bees are so integral to sustaining us i mean yeah there is no scientific basis for it but there is a lot like even it speaks about wormholes and things like that and nobody wants to dissect it on that level they just want to talk about surface level but when you go deeper there's actually a lot in there that you can break down and all we get is like don't eat shellfish and how i mean we have that too to be fair like don't eat pork and don't drink alcohol tribal rules that they needed don't eat pork, don't eat shellfish, don't kill your neighbour's goat, that sort of thing. I love goats. Do you? I do. They are cute. So, you seem to know a lot about the Quran. You are a practising Muslim? Yes. I think it depends on what you mean by practising. I think um, I try. I screw up a lot and I just I think it's really difficult to say whether or not you are practising because for me practising basically means you try your best and we never really know what someone's going through inside and if they are trying their best to uphold their religious practice and sometimes I think outwardly you can think someone's really practicing and they may not be inwardly and then outwardly they may not be practicing but they may be so much more quote-unquote religious than you are so I think like when I was back in university I used to be so much more judgmental in terms of how somebody was on the outside but it's only when I began to struggle with that and I struggled with my headscarf and my outer appearance only then did I go and realize that actually like you just cannot really know someone's level of practice until you like live with them maybe if even then because it's just such a personal thing so for you practicing isn't about like literally going to mosque and practicing in an outward way yeah it's but i think it's both if someone was like yeah i'm practicing but i would never pray and i'd never abide by the five pillars i'd be like okay fair enough but i do think that constitutes part of practicing the actual faith and what the faith says um but i do think it's also deeper than that you may for example say okay well this person i know and they never ever fast during ramadan but they might have a condition that you don't know about or they might be someone who tried to fast it's one of those things i could never really comment on and I think that's one thing I've learned from university that you don't need to try to justify or explain it the clear thing is you don't know and it's okay to not know somebody else's religious practice because why do you need to if it's not really impacting you and it kind of made me think of religion in a different way when you said that 
because if you're choosing to practice something, for instance, yoga or meditation, right, and you do it because you need to focus on it, you need to bring yourself back to it. I'm now thinking about religion in the way that maybe you don't go to church or mosque all the time, but when you feel like you need to go and you need to recenter yourself, that's when you go. Yeah. It comes back to, like, what does good practice entail and, like, how does each person view good practice? Like, to somebody following every single footstep of the prophet is good practice to somebody it's not necessarily about having like a fist long beard or wearing like a a thobe which is like a long dress for men I remember my dad was saying there are some men who want to emulate the prophet so so much that they will try to dress exactly how he did but I would never look at my dad and think he's any less religious than somebody who wears clothing like that and my dad who wears like trousers and a shirt and I I think he's equally if not more religious because the way he practices his faith is yeah he abides by the five pillars he's very practicing in the traditional sense like you have like traditional metrics of practicing yeah he prays five times a day he fasts during Ramadan he gives charity he believes in one God and all those different things but for me when I see his practice I see all of those things and I do think they are an integral part of the practice but I also see that he is the most unconditionally kind person you'll ever meet and he's the least judgmental person and he will try everything to for example understand someone's difficult positioning and when I look at myself the person I went to was my dad I was like Baba like I'm I'm struggling and I'm finding it really hard and he was just like that's fine talk to me and I think that's really difficult for people to understand that actually true religious practice is one where people can approach you where people feel safe around you because that's how you're supposed to feel when you think of God or when you go back to God it's like that safety that security and if you're not feeling that then I think you need to call into question your religious practice and what kind of a person are you if people feel unsafe around you or judged by you which is how I feel like I was before everything I ever judged somebody for God put me in a position where I went and carried out that action myself and it was almost like a reminder that you are prone to making mistakes and it's just so beautiful when God says that I created man to make mistakes because if you did not make mistakes and ask for my forgiveness I would replace you with the people who do make mistakes and ask for forgiveness because that's the whole point is to like showcase sort of God's mercy and stuff so I think if you're not embodying that as part of your practice that's when it's problematic I feel you just sort of blindly follow rules yeah and that's I think deeply un-Islamic as well you're not supposed to blindly follow your faith you need to know why you do what you do and if you don't then I think it's actually sinful there was something about uh, memorising the words of the Quran and not actively making an effort to understand what they're saying that's a problem I really relate to that actually parts of my family are from a very very strict Christian background and I've spoken to some Christians in the past who've said yeah being a Christian it keeps me good but that I think you need to know why you're doing something. Well, look, if the act of being a Christian keeps you good, you're not good. If you're like, I mustn't kill because God told me not to kill, you're not really being good. You're just not being bad. It's never supposed to be, it simply says, just do it. I have a quick question. I think I probably knew it at one point. What are the five pillars of Islam? So the Shahada, which is the declaration of faith, so I believe in one God and the Prophet Muhammad is the final messenger. Salah, so prayer, your five prayers. Som, which is fasting during the month of Ramadan. Uh, Zakat, which is charity on your annual wealth. And the last one is Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca that happens annually and it's only compulsory on people who can afford it. If you can't afford it, you don't have to go. It's interesting, I knew all of them, not necessarily by name, but I wouldn't have necessarily known that together they made the five pillars, you know. 
So the reason that I contacted you is because I read this really amazing article that you wrote for the Sunday Times Star magazine. Can you just tell us about why you decided to write that and your thoughts in the piece? So I'll start off with how I was approached for It's Not About the Broker. I got contacted by Mariam Khan, who is the editor. She's an amazing, incredible woman. And she'd read something I'd written for Amalia, which is an online platform that tries to amplify the voices of Muslim women. And what I spoke about is how the turban hijab became like a phenomenon and it was a symbol of the new modern Muslim woman, a digestible, tolerable Muslim who's like really stylish and she's got a headscarf on, but in a different way. And, and there was a lot of discussion around it because I specifically said the turban and a lot of people were like, well, what about the fact that a lot of people in places like Africa actually wear the turban and for me it was like yeah that's a cultural donning of the turban or a cultural interpretation of the religion whereas what's going on here in Britain and the media picking up on Muslim women who wear turbans they're not expressing it from what I can see because they are African because the people who were actually wearing them they weren't necessarily Afro-Caribbean and they weren't the ones who were being presented it was a lot of different white women on Vogue um, and I'm like okay so if anything the conversation should then shift onto like cultural appropriation you know you're taking a traditional African interpretation of how to wear a hijab or a headscarf and you've put it on a white woman and you're selling it off as hijab and to me I was like I just don't kind of feel included because if there is this new Muslim women's inclusion why aren't people like my mum represented and why are cultural dresses why are they not all accepted why is it only this version which is ambiguous for me I was like you're capitalizing on a gap in the market I just felt really kind of isolated from this wave of fantastic tolerable Muslim women and I was like it was just the fact that they were presented in this way that contributes to so many different insecurities insecurities I'd never sort of felt before so I when I used to wear a scarf before I never used to think about how I look like in terms of my face but because now you had women in headscarves who weren't necessarily Muslim like were plastered all over the media I thought oh god I actually need to look like that now and then you have a religious practice you're trying to live up to and like a, a beauty standard that you're now trying to live up to and they're just two unattainable standards because God mitigates for that when he says that your worth is never placed on how you look because I think he recognises that humans are fickle by nature and I think I think that's what it is and it was all these different feelings I was just angry about loads of different things and the, the truth is I recognise that not every Muslim woman would agree with me especially those who had, had not felt represented before or felt that they were being policed by the Muslim community for not wearing a headscarf the traditional way of wearing a headscarf like just fully wrapped around and for them that was finally a space to exist and be recognised so at that, in, in the same breath, you kind of have to be very, very wary of that. So for me, the, the end point was that if we are going to have this acceptance of Muslim women, we need to have comprehensive inclusivity. It cannot just be this new wave where before it used to be Muslim women in full burqas, that was Muslim women. And now it's actually only Muslim women who wear turbans or no headscarf are the new Muslim women. No, it's all of us, like literally all of us. And I think that's how it needed to be done. And that's kind of what I was critiquing. Just kind of like I felt conned out by capitalism again. I was like, oh God, like we were kind of immune to all of it because we were just like sort of in the background but now you found us you got us and now we're like oh god so I wrote all of that in like a quite a long article and then Mariam contacted me and she was like I read this piece and I thought it was sort of very brave of you to say something like this because when I said it 
it got a lot of backlash from people. Whereas now I've seen so many articles quite literally mirroring what I'm saying. And there's that understanding that Muslim women are not a monolith and within ourselves we disagree and that's absolutely fine. But back then it was a lot harder. Literally, I I remember being like, I'm so nervous. I feel so anxious. I can't reply to all these tweets and these messages on Facebook. But I'd said it and Marion was like, I really like this. Can you write for this anthology? And I'd love for you to write something around the hijab and stuff. And I remember saying that, well, if the point of It's Not About the Broker is to showcase that Muslim women exist outside of this narrative of oppression or the broker or terrorism, then surely we should be speaking about things other than the clothing of our faith. And she was like, yeah, but we do actually need to acknowledge that that exists. And I was like, well, look, I'm a teacher. I teach history. I want to talk about Muslims in education. I want to talk about accessibility. I want to talk about why young Muslim boys don't pick history. How do we get um, students to collectively identify with history without saying we're only going to teach you your history without explaining the importance of learning different histories and I gave her two different pictures and in the end we did settle on talking about the clothes of my faith and I remember up until the last day I couldn't think of a title and I was like do you want to just call it the clothes of my faith because I guess that's what they are and she's like yeah cool let's just call it that book went out fantastic the times picked up on it and I think the reason they did that was because it was about clothing and so they were like we'd love to commission her piece and serialize it And I was like, well, I'm not going to bloody say no, it's the times, (laughs) go for it. I mean, it's quite, I think that was the readership we wanted. So at Diversify, we ask stupid questions so that our listeners do not have to ask those stupid questions. How can hiding parts of you be empowering? define hiding like when you for example wear clothes it's not necessarily hiding it's styling I guess hiding my nip nips (laughs) and my bit bits um how can hiding parts of yourself be empowering because you do it for something other than the structural powers in place you do it because you believe that for example God has said and tell your women to draw their cloaks over their bosoms and to cover their hair and for me it's like God told me to do that why should I not Like, if I want to do it, why can I not do it? And I think it's become sort of like an ethno-religious indicator, but it's also become an anti-colonial defiance to society's expectations of women. And it's just kind of like, well, I don't walk around saying, how does showing parts of you empower yourself? Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the issue, is that we always want to ask Muslim women to explain their choices. And it's not a Muslim woman's job to educate the world about why she chooses to dress the way she dresses. It's very simple, like, God asks us, us to cover up certain parts of our body and he asked men to do the same thing so for example men cannot show their navel to their knee i think that's a thing that i have an issue with when there's um, a disparity between mm. how we the police men and women's bodies oh, yeah. and it's the same thing with actually a lot of people do ask women why showing their body is empowering it all comes down to sexism mm. we want to police women's bodies how does wearing a miniskirt make you feel empowered well because i've got banging legs mm. and it makes me feel sexy well then if a man slaps you on the ass you should be okay with it no i wear a miniskirt because i want to feel sexy you know why does wearing hijab make you feel empowered well because it makes me you know for me if somebody said why does hijab make you feel empowered i'd say well hijab is actually a concept headscarf and hijab are two different things hijab is a concept of modesty a concept of how you behave of how you conduct yourself and unfortunately muslim women are the ones who are policed with that the reason it makes me feel empowered is personally my empowerment lies through pleasing god 
And I respect others who don't have that belief. But you're right, it's a lot to do with sexism. Like, we will police Muslim women on how they talk, on how they behave, on what they wear. And we will never do the same with men. We will never say, actually, you are supposed to be observing hijab the exact same way. You are supposed to be dressing the way that has been, like, Islamically or religiously ordained upon you. You are supposed to be respecting women. It is not the job of a woman to cover up in front of you. It is your job to turn your eyes away. So there's actually a really interesting anecdote of when a very, very beautiful woman came to the Prophet face was uncovered and she was talking to him and his cousin was stood there and he was just like gawking at her and the prophet didn't say to the woman wear a veil walk away he literally carried on talking and as he was talking moved his cousin's face his gaze away because it's like yeah women in islam are told to wear a headscarf or women in islam are told to dress in a certain way men are also told though to mind their gaze and not be predatory and you just have so much discussion about rape and like you were saying about the miniskirt you should be all right if a man slapped your ass well actually men slap women in brokers too men freaking do things to babies as well the onus should not be on women to stop themselves being sexually harassed or raped or anything like that and i think that's the issue that we have the focus is always on what women are doing and I think if you want to know what empowers women empowering women for me is not always having to explain my choices and just being given the same level of respect as my white counterparts my non-muslim counterparts and I think the issue as well is we never talk about how for example um, women are expected to wear high heels or push-up bras or certain types of shorts and we never frame it in the lens of oppression or how men enforce that on women in a way as well and women reclaimed that and they were like actually I'm going to wear it because I feel sexy or I want to do it for me but we and now we're blaming them for being raped yeah yeah we're all flailing our arms in the air right now (laughs) yeah and i just think it's the same with like muslim women as well it's just about removing the men from the equation and understanding that it's got nothing to actually do with them i would never sit and say to my brother why are you looking at that girl i mean not that he does but you know but whereas if a woman did it it's like why are you doing that why are you speaking in in modest tone or why are you speaking loudly and i'm thinking mate when you see all these muslim asian boys driving up and down green street with their like music blaring no one turns around and says actually what on earth oh we could just sit here and talk about the patriarchy all day it all comes down to um sexism yeah like and, and i mean like sexism comes down to what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman and the moment you deviate from really rigid oppressive versions of what it means to be a man and a woman you're automatically swimming against the tide I just went on my phone for a second to pull up this review that was left on our book. Um, As a Muslim man, I must say that this book helped me gain a valuable insight into the way Muslim women navigate this world. In all honesty, even though I did not personally agree with everything, I realised the importance of valuing another's mind. If anything, this book has shown me that just because I do not know of a reality, it does not mean it does not exist. I am thankful to the women who penned this book, as I am confident it will help with my relationship with my daughter, who is likely to face similar issues in her life. The essays about hijab and feminism were especially eye-opening. So I think really the onus is actually on men we can write and talk and create podcasts and all this material but until a man actually sits down and says you know what here I am I'm ready to educate myself out of ignorance out of sexism out of racism out of whatever it is that I embody I'm ready to do it it's just not going to happen so when you read things like that I mean it's pathetic that our standard is so low that someone's turned around and said I appreciate it you know that's a baseline requirement you need to freaking be a human being and understanding of other people but that's the only way I feel like things are ever going to change. It's an acceptance and, and a willingness to educate yourself out of your behaviours. That conversation made me think of white women wearing the hijab in solidarity over Christchurch. I just wanted to ask you how you feel about that. 
I get where it came from and I recently gave a talk at Barclays I was talking about struggling and, and faith and how it's like such a difficult journey to navigate one that's wrought with struggles and someone put their hand up and was like it's so amazing that we have this woman who is wearing a headscarf in solidarity I remember thinking as I was sat there right but don't you think it's problematic that you're talking about her wearing the hijab in solidarity and not the lead up to Christchurch and the victims of it? And I think that's the issue. It was the decentering of the victims and centering mm. of the white pain. And you're like, okay, but can we focus on the victims, the manifestos that allowed for this to happen and the politicians in power, the structural oppression of Muslim communities all around the world, Muslims in China in concentration camps. Like, let's talk about the victims. And if you want to talk about heroes, we can talk about heroes, but let's talk about the man who ran at the terrorist with his hands open. The was woman who went back in to save her wheelchair-bound husband and died, and he's still alive. But we're not gonna talk about that. Why are our standards so low for the treatment of Muslim communities? What she is doing is what any leader should do. You're wearing the hijab in solidarity, great. That's not what we're gonna focus on though. What we're gonna focus on is your policy. Applaud her policy, say excellent, you took away all the weapons and you did this and you did that. Fantastic, that is what any leader should do. But I just feel that we automatically lower the moral standard and the general humanness of the Muslim community when we say, wow, you know what? You treated us as a human. That should be like clean water. That should be a basic right, being treated as human and having policies that protect us. I get it comes from a good place and I feel like her wearing it was to show respect, but when you have the media flocking and decentering the victims and not looking at the ramifications or the seriousness that is Islamophobia, that's actually the issue. So I remember saying to that person, I was like, do you not find it problematic that in the wake of Christchurch, you are talking to me about New Zealand Prime Minister, but you are not talking to me about the victims of the attack. If you were able to do both and say, that was really good, right, so let's talk about this, that would have been better. But the fact that you didn't is where I think the issue lies. Was this person you were speaking to part of the media or just a No, it was just somebody who well, asked the question. No, they were actually a brown Muslim man. <gasps> and that's why I was like, do you, duh, do you not see like how we've embodied that? It's just, it's, it just goes back to things like, do you agree with ISIS? Do you think I'm a nutter? Why do you even ask me these questions that lower my moral standing, that lower me as a human? Why do you think it's okay to not talk about who the victims are and instead talk about the pain that someone else is showcasing as a result. Also, the thing that I like genuinely did think Jacinda Ardern did so amazingly is send to the victim. She, I don't know the name of the shooter. Yeah. She was like, I'm not going to say his name. She centered everything around the community that was the most hurt. I've seen videos of her talking about when they could get their loved ones back because of like burial customs and stuff. And, and paying like, for that and covering the costs. And did actually, they? I think so. I think I read something like that. But even just like creating policy, that that's it. We are not going to allow for this to happen again. That was incredible. Interestingly, most of the conversations that I've had with people and the stuff that I've been uh, listening to is just concentrating on the gun stuff mm. so it's really sad to hear that the community that's being affected you're always creating a white savior yeah unfortunately we have got this inferiority complex and I, and I just think we should not as the muslim community be focusing on our new savior our saviors were there in that mosque when he walked in and they said welcome brother those are the people i should be talking about and thinking about and that you're sitting there in front of me and saying shouldn't we really like be happy that she did that why <laughs> we as white western people are the ones who should be looking towards just in the art and not as like a hero but to be like that's the standard we should have it shouldn't be about you to praise her for that standard it should be about the rest of new zealand who are not muslim and and donald 
fucking Trump supporters going, oh, that's how you handle it. Yeah. Oh, we need to but learn from that. they're projecting not... their own shit onto it. The Americans are talking about guns. And, and the British media is fixated on that. It's just yeah. like, it's. I think it comes from all different communities. And I think even us having this conversation, it just shows a level of how much we have decentered those victims. The fact that, like, we're sitting here on a podcast talking about her. And, do you know I'm what I mean? Like, part of it. like do, do you see what I mean? Like, I, it, it needs to happen. And I think it's going to keep happening until we finally educate ourselves out of it. Or the media or the establishment or people in power, positions of power, whatever. They stop doing it. Um, and, and I guess until then, these conversations are necessary. But I, I just do think that is reflective of the reality that actually, yeah, we did decenter the victims. I mean, I do think it's bad to decenter the victims, but I also think that the conversations that are happening to a lot of people who are Islamophobic, forcing them to take a look in the mirror and say, actually, a lot of the stuff I say was in that manifesto. Mm oh, does that make me a bad person? Yeah, it does. You know, yeah. I think we're taking away the excuses. I agree with you, and I think it's just something that all those conversations need to happen. Now he's finally been called a terrorist, and we've realised that we need to treat Muslims like they're human, and now moving forward, that needs to be a baseline standard. It's not something that we then keep doing, because unfortunately, we kind of... We know things like this are going to keep happening, and I know that's such a morbid thing to say, like, next time this happens, but, like, everything's going to die down after Christchurch, and then something else is going to happen, and, you know... That's, unfortunately, the way it is, but from here going forth now, it's about having that standard and being like, yep, you deserve this and this is the way we should address it like we would any other community and we're going to treat you in that same way with that same level of respect, understanding what happened and how it got to this point and addressing that properly Mm. as world leaders and taking Jacinda as an example and saying, you know what, I'm going to do what she did because that's what you're supposed to actually do. I think as well, going forward needs to be about also allowing the affected community to take ownership of their pain. So for example, when the Pulse shootings happened, 2016 in the nightclub in America, a nightclub. Owen Jones went on live TV. Every time he tried to talk about how Pulse had been an attack against the LGBT community, Julie Hartley Brewer and this other old white guy, straight guy, were like, no, no, it's attack on um, humanity. It's attack on people who want to enjoy themselves and have fun. And Owen was like, no, if this was in a Jewish place of worship, you would say it was an anti-Semitic attack. This is an attack on the gay community, particularly the latinx gay community but he was like this is not about you this is about us and he actually stormed out and i really hope that we stop trying to take something that was very obviously aimed at one part of society or just not talk about the community it was targeted like this is about all people well it's bloody not because otherwise all people would have been part of the attack and they were not and i think just like when you mentioned like owning the pain and i just even just that, like, owning the narrative, I'm so grateful for these spaces that Muslim women are now taking up because that's who I think are bringing to our attention the people who were involved in Christchurch and who who suffered as a result. And, And I think now you're slowly seeing that we're finally being given a voice and we actually have a lot of good stuff to say. Yeah, I say it's almost like a juvenile way of trying to achieve solidarity, of going, you know, it's an attack on everybody. It's just like... Trying to achieve something wonderful in a really stupid... Backhanded way. Backhanded way. What are your thoughts on Shamima Begum being denied citizenship? I do question why 400 plus men who defected to IS, natively English and otherwise were allowed back, whereas a 15-year-old, groomed and brainwashed, who is a subject of media frenzy, 
isn't allowed back. I was on TRT World and, and there was a discussion about whether or not she was actually groomed and did she know what she was doing and are we taking away her autonomy? And the guy that I was on with, his name is Richard McNeil Wilson, he's really, really good and he talks a lot about counter-extremism and terrorism. He, he was like, well, if the prevent strategy, for example, is framed under the guise of sort of vulnerability and safeguarding, should we not then be taking a look at what happened in our education system, in her home, in her environment, to allow her to go ahead and do something like that? As a 15-year-old, what made you think it was the right thing to do to go and join a terrorist organisation? If we do not give 15-year-olds the right to have sex and we think they're not clever enough to do that. One of the things we always talk about in school is that 15 year olds don't have that link yet. You know, they don't have that logical link in their brain. They don't understand. Why are you punishing her the way you would a fully mature adult? And the issue with this is people assume you are sympathizing with what she did. It's not, it's a comprehensive understanding of her mindset. Um, and I think that's what we kind of miss. And my question is, why are we missing it for an underage brown Muslim girl mm. and not for whoever else was kind of involved? And also, like, she's a victim. She can still be the perpetrator of terrible evils if she did them, but you can be more than one thing. The fact that our policy can be dictated by media frenzies is, is so deeply disconcerting and shows how our policies of safeguarding and vulnerability are a total sham, not to mention the fact that people are calling her an immigrant even though she was born and brought up in the UK and not to mention that the UK needed these you know quote-unquote immigrants post-World War II and when the NHS was in crisis and you know we needed all the Asians and the black doctors then and, and, and it was all fine um, and it's such a stupid move because I feel like Britain decided to sort of shift the blame because it's too costly to try and test someone to the full extent of the law and imprison them and then rehabilitate them but honestly when your views are in line with Katie Hopkins you need to be rethinking if you're spouting racist and unfound sentiments or if you're actually dealing with the issue at hand which is British foreign policy and inadequate direction and a focus on the wrong aspects of society. All of a sudden loads of random strangers on Facebook became like experts on grooming. They were like well it would have never happened to me and I would never have gone and done that and I was like oh so I'm assuming that somebody groomed tried. you when you were 15 and tried to do that. No of course not. You don't know what you would do and you weren't groomed and you're not 15 and all the experts are saying that it's obvious she was groomed and what separates us from these horrible ISIS-like states is that we have justice, theoretically. People's assumption that when you say Shamir Begum should come back is that you sympathise with her actions. No, imprison her. Properly go down and find out what happened. What do we have a justice system for? You are sending her to a place where you deem lives to be less valuable. That is the truth of the matter. And I just think you're trying to shift the blame and say she's not Britain's problem. I just, I just think it's a bit bizarre that men who fought and actively killed other people are allowed back. But she went as a, like a housewife thinking she'd have a better life. And then that brings into question what was her life like? you can convince someone of something if you say it enough times. It's just like a standard thing. I mean, think of abusive relationships, friendships, the media. It's like reflective of Nazi Germany. When you look at America, you think, shit, this is, it's the media that did this. You, ah, oh, Russian bots and whatever. Yeah, but still, it was the media. It was social media, for example, pushed people to a certain degree where they were like, actually, yeah, this makes sense. Stop the podcast. It's time for a snazzy ad break. Did you know that Balance Garden have now teamed up with Flatiron Square? Balance Garden now have a real life venue where they're doing yoga classes all day every Tuesday. It's a beautiful space, it's got nice walls, it's got kooky lights and it kind of looks like what I would imagine a New York loft to look like had I ever been to one that wasn't just a room in Ikea. Anyway, they're in the middle of Flatiron Square which is perfect if you're working on the South Bank or anywhere near there. 
The classes are called Wellness Tuesdays and they're part of SHAPE. We've got a special introductory offer for you. You get 50% off your first five class pass with the code MOVEMORE. For more information and to book your introductory offer, visit balancegarden.co.uk. Also on their website are articles about healthy living, finding balance in the city and the occasional bit from me, making jokes about how lost I am and trying to find philosophical musings from observing the diverse clientele in McDonald's at 3am on a Friday night. You are so welcome. We've got questions that we ask everyone. Mm -hmm. The first one is inarguably the most important one and that is what is your favourite Disney movie? Oh my god, seriously. You can't ask me to do that. Lion King. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best answer. You couldn't posit Lion King. (laughs) Why I think it just represents your modern Asian... No, not even your traditional Asian families, man. It's Asian politics. To me, I'm like, damn straight, that's my great uncle. Mufasa is like... My mum's inheritance and Scar is like my uncle, and you know, it's Simba the most is a universal thing in the world. Is it, is it all? Is it you two well, as well? Well, because <laughs> so it represents the Asian family. It's set in Africa and it's loosely based on Hamlet, which, let's be honest, is literally about Denmark. Denmark so the whitest place in the world. Also, um, the music is fantastic. I also like Sarabi and Mufasa. Just their voices, generally so soothing. And Simba and Nala's love story. I mean, and Timon and Pumbaa. Like, come on, I, you just can't not love them. They're it's just so an all-rounder. Brilliant. Yeah. But we ask this to people because we feel like we can psychoanalyze them, and, uh, just and we've that. done it perfectly. And also, I just don't like the victimizing of women in other Disney movies. So. Fair. Or maybe it's like you've just got this one. Um, who you really don't just, like. Yeah, he's <laughs> scar. He's fucking scar, man. He looks like him too. <laughs> Racist uncle. Racist uncle. <laughs> um, we have one more question which we ask everyone and it's a really nice way to end the podcast. We talk about so much stuff that we're pissed off about on this podcast and how much we wish could be better and all our frustration but we can forget that there are a lot of good things happening so can you give us a bit of sunshine to end the podcast on something that is making you feel better about how the future can be better than the past um my students i think at school um my daughter as well but she's two and sometimes she just winds me up because she's so brainy that i just have to be like chill yourself you are (laughs) i am your mother I have lived in this world without you. You have not lived without me. But she'll be like, excuse me, do you mind? She just, she, and she goes, mummy, you mustn't do that. With an accent too. And I'm like, oh, fine. Um, the kids at school, because um, during Christmas period, one of them came up to me and told me about some of the things that had happened to her. And a couple of Muslim students said these different things that had happened. And they were really upset. And they were like, we wanted to come to Miss Ahmed and we wanted to tell her what happened because we didn't think anybody would listen. But we know that you always listen. And it was, it was harrowing because it was like sexual abuse. But as a Christmas present, she sang me a carol. She just sat there in my classroom and sang it, and I was so overwhelmed. And then just a couple of weeks ago, one of them came and said, Miss Ahmed, I've been waiting for your lesson. I want to tell you what one of the teachers said to me, you know, about my religion, and I know no one else is going to take it seriously except you, so I want to write you a statement. She wrote me, like, a statement and was like, I was so angry. And students saying to me, Miss, I think I'm going to apply to Oxbridge, actually. I'm, I'm not going to feel that I, I'm not worthy. And one of them wrote, thank you, is an EAL student, and thank you for teaching me to my understanding, Miss. And I think the best one I ever got was she wrote me a letter and goes, Miss, I was having a really bad day, but then I saw your face and I felt a lot better. And I was like, 
Um, and just I feel like being able to speak to my students about things like Nazi Germany and telling them about fertile breeding grounds for dictatorship and then being like, actually, yeah, we can see that happening and educating them and realising that we are cultivating a new generation of quote-unquote woke people who are going to go in not having to break down these barriers they will just be educated into excellence and I think that's probably what makes me feel really good. I relate to that yeah. completely as a teacher it's wonderful when you're talking to a group of students outside the globe and you say so men used to be the only people who were allowed to form on the stage and then eight eight-year-olds go that's yeah. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. It's happening yeah. all around us in education to youth, and I just I think that's where everything starts. Mm. And I've got to say, like the whole children, they are the future thing. Millennials are not the kids anymore, and we're like looking at the generation, the Parkland kids, the teenager who's been nominated for a Nobel Prize because of the climate change work she's doing. Kids getting out of school and going to parliament and saying to our politicians do something about climate change all these amazing things that these 12 to 22 year old kids are doing and i just look at them and i'm like wow okay i hope that your forefathers haven't fucked things up so much that it's beyond repair and we're trying but we're that kind of weird in between that's kind of not being as useful or hasn't had the chance to I think to maybe we're more facilitators than anything. Maybe that's our positioning. You have the oppressors and you have the freedom fighters and maybe we're just the generation of facilitators. We're the generation that were waiting on the world to change, as they say. As, as John, John Mayer, Mayer says. says. Yes. And we were waiting and the generation below us You're taking too waiting. long. Exactly. You're taking far too long. See you later. As this John Mayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Waiting on John. <gasps> his yeah. voice or him as a person? Because him as a person, I don't care. His voice, though. Um... His voice is great. His guitar skills are great. I actually think he's not a good songwriter. But him as a person, how could you treat Jen Aniston that badly? What did he do? I don't even know his life. He was just a dick. He was just a dick to Taylor uh, Jennifer Aniston when they did. Taylor Swift wrote a song about him. Did she? Anyway. What was it called? Dear John. Oh, Great. damn. Be less like John Mayer. Change it. Don't wait for the world to I, change. I'm literally not allowing you to end on a John Mayer quote. I find it. That's not. That wasn't a quote. That okay. was me thinking about the quote and coming okay. out with another quote that was like the quote. Facilitate the change. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what? I think it's because I want in my heart, like I'm just like this opinionated activist, and I'm just really trying, and and Go but out I can't. Button. Do something yeah, and I'm not, and, I, and maybe actually there is something nice about being like, maybe our generation, we are not the generation that's meant to get all the headlines, but we are the ones who can write the headlines. The conditions. Yeah. Create environments in which people can actualise their aspirations. That is like my mantra for like when I walk into school, because, you know, I'm not a saviour, I'm not there to save the children, I'm there to create environments for them to actualise their excellence. Great. Yeah. And here's your superhero cape that, <laughs> as a woman, you never get given. Thank so you. There and you a go. badge. You get a badge too. Do I get a Blue Peter badge, mate? And some glitter. Oh my goodness. You get the gold Blue Peter badge. Um, <laughs> plugs. Plug, 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 plug. Uh, do you want to talk about your book? Where can we get it? Yeah, um, it's not about the broker. It's available at Foils, Waterstones, quite a few independent bookstores now. Tap it in online and, and, and you can find it. Um, it's not hard. Just look it up. <laughs> <laughs> do the fucking work, boys. Google it. Patriarchy. Okay. Um, what's your Twitter, Instagram? Uh, Twitter is eduaf, so E-D-U-A-F-S underscore. I went on your Twitter earlier. It's pretty... Pretty lit, as your <laughs> students would say. There was a whole thing about wanting waffles. Oh, come on, that was genius. 
That I, I, come on, that was innovation. I mean, I can't eat waffles. Oh right, because you or don't eat chicken. Oh. So I was like, but I did not see that. So um, chicken and waffles, I was craving them. Um, and so and pretty niche. No, no, because they weren't halal. There was no way on Uber Eats that had halal chicken and waffles. So what I did is I ordered a waffle with maple syrup from Creams and then separately ordered chicken from Morley's and then put it on top. And it was dank. It was so good. <laughs> to be fair, I had chicken nuggets uh, for lunch, not chicken. But they were so good you wouldn't know. They were actually better than chicken nuggets. I'm trying to, like, trying to make some of my like, non-Muslim mates stop eating pork. So I'm like, try turkey bacon. <laughs> and they're like, it's crap. Oh, I can tell you the best vegan sausages. Really? Yeah. Well, well when this goes off, I'll are. tell you all about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Holly is our uh, team Q. Our team, our team Q. Uh, you're definitely somebody who calls it the Burkhart. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And Sauvignon Blanc. In it, Governor. Our team Q. Our as in uh, we are all one, but we are not a monolith. Team as in tag team when you get too tired to educate somebody tag it onto somebody who has more energy and cue as in the queen i'll be really sad when she dies mm. even though i'm not a royalist i think she's badass such a sense of humor hilarious okay so i am kate lois elliott kate means kate lois means, means lois, lois. Elliot means Elliot. Two L's, two T's. And Brexit means a crock of shit. We are on Twitter at DiversifyPod. And Instagram as DiversifyPodcast. Please rate and subscribe because you love us. If you didn't like the podcast, rate and subscribe at Nigel Farage's LBC (laughs) programme. see you we will not see you ever and we won't hear you because we're the ones on the podcast but you will hear us again next week again, again as many times as every time you hit play on an episode of diversify and that's a fact <laughs>